Welcome to the Historias Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. As the second part of our series on Nazis in the Iberian Peninsula, today we're going to discuss the bombing of the Basque town of Guernica on April 26, 1937. To do so, I'm joined by Xavier Irujo, director of the Center of Basque Studies at the University of Nevada, Reno. His recent book, Guernica 1937, The Market Day Massacre, situates the infamous bombing in its international context. So Xavier, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. As I mentioned, your book, I think it really stands out from, you know, all the things that have been written about the bombing because it really puts the event in its historical international context and you draw on archival research from all different countries, Germany, France, England, the U.S., and Spain. So it seems to me that you kind of suggest that the story of Guernica actually begins in Germany, in a sense, with the, the head of the Luftwaffe, Ermann Göring. To start out, I thought maybe you could talk about why Göring was interested in Germany getting involved in the Spanish Civil War and what he hoped to accomplish there. Göring, at the time, 1937, was one of the most powerful men in the Nazi government. But he was about on the fourth level of government at the time. He was Minister of the Air. And this is something that he didn't like, of course. He wanted to be named Hitler's successor, as he got it a year later. What uh, he had in mind was that when the opportunity rose to go to war in Spain, I mean, after the riot of General Franco, General Mula, and General San Jorge, he saw there the opportunity to test the weapons and convince Hitler that the best weapon for the next war, they were already speaking on the next war in the letters, in the speeches everywhere, they were already mentioning the next war, this is uh, World War II, in the next war the Air Force was going to be the main weapon, the decisive uh, weapon of the race. So in order to demonstrate that, to test that and to convince Hitler, he needed a war. He needed somewhere to test this uh, powerful weapon, the Air Force. And basically, terror bombing, or bombing in general, mm -hmm. was what he had in mind. Goering got control over three of the ministers of the Reich in one year by doing this, by testing his weapons, basically by bombing open cities, such as Guernica. Guernica was one of them. Mm -hmm. And um, he got control of the Minister of War, the Minister of the Economy and the Minister of Foreign Affairs. The Minister of the Economy basically disappeared and Hitler named Goering the head of the four-year plan. The four-year plan started in 1936 was a plan set to prepare Germany for war in four years. So World War II was going to be starting in 1940. They advanced that to September 1939, right. but uh, that was the idea. And, uh, well, he became the second most powerful person in the Reich by demonstrating that he could do with the Air Force something that the rest couldn't. Destroy, completely erase a city from the map was something that he could do with the planes. But if the city is inland, the Navy cannot do that. And for sure, the infantry troops have to be very close to the city to, to be able to destroy them. Right. The, the Luftwaffe could do that at a long range, in a record time, and at a coast, at a very low coast, in uh, financial terms. Mm -hmm. 
and but all that was what he had in mind when he came to the Basque country to bomb all these cities. And you mentioned this idea of uh, terror bombing. Could you tell us a little bit more about what exactly that means? Basically, there are three types of bombing. Let's mm -hmm. say. Bombing is basically bombing, uh, dropping bombs from an airplane. So there are three types of bombings. One is bombing the enemy positions in the battlefield. And that would be called tactical bombing. You also can bomb positions that are far from the front line, but that the enemy is going to be using, such as, for example, roads or factories, etc. To bomb these targets is usually referred to as strategic bombing. And then the third type of bombing is terror bombing, which means to bomb places, open cities, I mean places with no military interest, but that may affect uh, the morale of the enemy in order to make it surrender by fear, basically. So terror bombing usually targets open cities full of civilians, places that cannot be defended, and of course it is illegal uh, according to the laws of war. So this is not the first case that we see bombing being used in warfare, but this idea of terror bombing, is this something new that the Nazis had, or, or did it already exist? It existed. Uh, as I have said, uh, the history of aerial bombing uh, goes back to 1849. So mm -hmm. by the 1899, there were so many events and so many bombings had happened in history that for the first time, aerial bombings were uh, forbidden. So no, it was nothing new. What we may say is that, you know, the aircraft were much better in 1937 than before. The bombs as well were much more powerful as they are today, you know. I mean, it has been a process. What the German staff discovered or even tested in the Basque Country, and in this case, in the case of Garnica in particular, was a new strategy for bombing. Uh, the bombing of Garnica was planned in such a way that uh, more people were going to be killed and uh, the level of material destruction in the city was going to be much bigger. That was done by, let's say, organizing the bombing into different waves of bombing and machine gunning and planning, let's say, how these bombs are going to be dropped, when, etc. That's uh, quite new. Mm -hmm. about Guernica, but the terror bombing was an old idea. Yeah, so I guess it's more about organizing it in such a fashion for the maximum psychological effect. Exactly. Okay. And the maximum uh, material destruction as well. Okay, great. So we'll take a little pause now that we've outlined the situation in terms of the strategy that was being used in Guernica, and when we come back we'll look at the bombing itself.
Alright, welcome back. So, in this second section, I wanted to consider the bombing of Guernica itself. So, could you just give us a brief uh, summary of how the bombing unfolded on that day in April 1937? As um, I said, the bombing was chirurgically planned. It was a war experiment. So what uh, Richthofen, Wolfram von Richthofen, was doing that day in Guernica was to demonstrate that this new system of bombing, this new strategy of bombing, was going to be the future of warfare. Or at least it is going that that was going to become the next way of bombing during World War II, mm -hmm. as like I've said, in the next war. One of the first things that um, they did was study Guernica, how Guernica was, where it was located, etc. One, uh, at the time, you know, there was no radar, so the detection of planes was manual, basically visual. So there was, there is a mountain over Guernica, on top of Guernica, and there, there were three guards, you know, looking at the sky. Yeah. And they saw planes coming. They rose some flags and made some signals that uh, then another person located in the, in the church, mm -hmm. the town, saw and then made the, the bells rang in town. That was the system. Many times they saw planes coming from a certain direction and then these planes just passed through. And then right. they had to do another signal to the people, you know, to tell the people you can go off the shelters. There were 17 shelters in town. Th that's a lot uh, for a town that was not supposed to be bombed because there was no military presence, there was no military objective, unless the weapon factory, there was one weapon factory that was a legitimate, let's say, a military target, right. and nothing else. They knew that that the system was that. And they knew exactly where uh, the factory was in Guernica. They had plans that we have discovered in different archives. I mean, the German command had plans and the Spanish command in general, Franco, had plans of Guernica. So they knew how Guernica was. Another factor that was uh, taken into account is that Guernica was located about 10 kilometers from the coast, from mm -hmm. the sea. The sea is at the north. So, if you come on a plane from the north, from the sea, and approach Guernica in that direction, then uh, the people on top of that mountain do not have almost time to ring the bells, because it takes about five minutes uh, to run that distance at a slow speed, and then, of course, in five minutes you cannot reach the shelters. It was calculated that it was required about 15 minutes to reach the shelters. So, uh, that's very important because everyone may think that the first attack, the first wave of bombing came from the sea, but it is not such. The first attack was very strange. It was a single plane, it was not a bomber, it was a, a ground attack Heinkel uh, 51 plane, mm -hmm. a small plane with six bombs of 10 kilograms each. And that plane approached Guernica from the east not from the north. And not only that, it didn't bomb or machine gun Guernica on the spot. It started to circle around for about 10 to 15 minutes, which was exactly the time that people needed to go to the shelters. That first plane was sent to Guernica in order to alert the people to force the bells ring 
and to make sure that everyone was in the shelters by the time the bombing started. In other words, this first plane arrived in Guernica from the east. Everyone, the reaction, the natural reaction of the people, the protocol was to ring the bells. Bells were rang. Everyone went to the shelters. There was space for 3,500 people in the shelters, in the yeah. 17 shelters in Guernica. And then everyone was packed in the city. After this uh, plane got it, after 15, 15 minutes, that plane started to drop the six small bombs that uh, it had in the very city center and machine gun people also in the city center. That caused the first fires. Right after that first plane, and all this is the first wave of attack, mm -hmm. another six planes came, bomber planes, three German planes and three Italian planes. And they dropped all their bombs in the very city center and in the water deposit so that there was no more water in city for the firemen. And that was the first wave. Now, what happened in Guernica? The firemen and the medics and the nurses went right to the city center. Everyone thought that that was it, that that was the bombing, that Guernica had been bombed. That was a standard procedure. You know, one small plane and six bombers in any Basque city at the time. So, as you can imagine, if you have family members in town or whatever, you were going to go to town, not escaping from town. Yeah. Everyone was going to the city center. And so the Germans actually wanted people to concentrate in the, kind of ironically, in the bomb shelters. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. They wanted everyone in the shelters and everyone packed in the middle of the city. Especially who was going to be in the middle of the city after that? Firemen, doctors and nurses. And these are three, three groups of people that you don't want alive by the end of the bombing, mm -hmm. when the real bombing happens. So no one can kill the fires, etc. Then the second wave of attack started. The second wave of attack, attack was about 23 to 30 fighter planes with bombs, and many of them had six bombs of 20 pounds each, generating a ring of fire around Guernica, preventing anyone from escaping Guernica. So there was a circle of fighter planes in chains. Probably the planes were 30 in 10 groups of three planes each. These uh, ground attack planes attacked in three, in groups of three. So, you know, these people in Guernica at the time, we are speaking of about 10 to 12,000 civilians, mostly women and children. These are the people going to the marketplaces at war really? because there was no food in Bilbao. So um, the bus government put trains for these people to go that day to, to Guernica and also buses. You know, they were so afraid that they went uh, hiding, let's say, underneath a tree. And um, they were looking up. When they saw one of these planes machine gunning that tree, uh, these planes were machine gunning at uh, 100 meters, 60, 60 meters of uh, altitude, which is nothing, underneath the bell tower of the church in Guernica. Oh, wow. They could see the glasses of the pilots. There are many eyewitnesses saying that. Well, so they, the reaction was to run when they saw the first plane and they started to run. They didn't know that after that plane, another two were coming in that chain. So if the, the, the mission of this first plane was to just to, to frighten these people, so they started running and then it came the second one. 
they had two machine guns that could fire 20 bullets per second each so we're speaking of 40 bullets per second bullets that are able to shut down a plane so you can yeah. imagine what they do to a person and uh, it was an easy target basically right. for the second plane of the of the chain and then the last uh, fighter came down and dropped one or two of the bombs that they had so the resulting death toll was very high because of that that happened for another 40 minutes and so once they had everyone packed in the middle of Guernica the second wave generated the circle of fire for 40 minutes why 40 minutes because 40 minutes is the time that the protocol set for the people to remain in the shelters just in case a second wave of bombing happened and then the real carpet bombing operation uh, started let's say the third wave of the bombing and in this case these Junkers 52 came from the sea from mm -hmm. the north so no one could uh, advertise them no one could see them what uh, they did was to fly in an aerial corridor of about 150 meters wide and drop all the bombs they had on the city center there at the time was almost everyone out right. in the open and the civilians in this case again elderly people women and children in the shelters these uh, bombers had bombs explosive bombs of 250 kilograms which is almost 500 uh, pounds yeah. and uh, smaller ones of 100 pounds 50 kilograms and they also had incendiary bombs so the, they attacked in the following way in waves of three planes abreast and they dropped first the, in, the explosive bombs the explosive bombs opened the buildings that were made of uh, rock in the outside mm -hmm. and of wood in the internal part of the buildings and then once opened by the explosive bombs the incendiary bombs were dropped inside and that means that uh, well the, 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 they set a fire Guernica because they dropped about 31 tons of bombs indeed they dropped so many bombs that uh, the bombers didn't have space for that quantity of bombs in the carriers in the bomb carriers but these planes were basically transportation planes so Ristofen ordered to put boxes of incendiary bombs in the internal corridor of the planes to be dropped by hand by these uh, aviators inside wow. the, the bombers so they were carrying the maximum load mm -hmm. they could and uh, well after that of course Garnica is completely afire it's even worse than that because one single bomb of 250 kilograms was able to destroy to completely demolish a building of five stories the shelters usually were on the cellars of these buildings what happened was that all this rubble collapsed on top of the shelters Ristofen knew that he didn't have the new he knew that because he tested that in other towns before Guernica he didn't have a weapon strong enough as to destroy the shelters uh -huh. so what he decided was well okay so let's let's have them buried on the rubble and these people are not going to die because of the explosion but they are going to die of asphyxiation lack of oxygen these incendiary bombs generated temperatures of 2500 degrees celsius which is enough as to melt steel so these people in these places were slowly getting off oxygen first 
and second, they were literally cooked. It was not burned. These bodies, when rescued, were not burned exactly. They were like cooked because temperature goes rising slowly uh, underground. So um, that was what was happening uh, in Guernica, starting in that second wave uh, of uh, bombing. And of course, this is a very slow death. Yeah, uh, it uh, people dying that way take uh, 12, even 24 hours today, in complete darkness and alone. Now most of the people were trying to escape, so again, 30 fighter planes came to stop them from escaping. So we have all in all four waves. The first wave is that single plane with six bombers, then the second wave is the first ring of fire, then the third wave is the massive bombing with explosive and incendiaries, and then the fourth wave is again the ring of fire. And that was a novel system of bombing that was tested for the first time in Guernica and then uh, by Ristofan himself in Warsaw, in Stalingrad, in Frampol. That was another war experiment that uh, he carried out in the campaign of Poland and it was very effective. Mm -hmm. It was so effective that in the end the Allies started to bomb following a very similar scheme of bombing. For example, Dresden was bombed in a very similar way. No fighter planes were used, but the system of waving, let's say breaking into different waves, the bombing, was also practiced by other armies. Yeah, so you can see a direct influence uh, from this technique first tried in Guernica yeah. on World War II in both the Nazis and the Allies. Yeah. Indeed, some authors claim that World War II was lost in Guernica because when Ristofen tried to do the same thing in Stalingrad, he was facing an army. Guernica was an open city. There was no anti-aircraft. There was nothing. But uh, that rubble in which Stalingrad became was used by the Soviet soldiers as a, as a perfect ground of, uh, of a battleground. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was something that they didn't take into consideration before bombing so hard. Stalingrad, for example. Uh, so yeah, we may say that uh, in some way they learned not in the best way possible because there were so many aspects, so many ingredients, let's say, that uh, in Guernica they didn't take into account because, yeah. again, there was no resistance. Uh, so we'll take another pause and then we'll talk about some of the uh, repercussions of the bombing in Guernica. I thought in this third section we could look a little bit at the international repercussions uh, of the bombing and I think usually when we think of its impact we think of the famous Picasso painting but you mentioned that the international press coverage ex extended far beyond the one painting and you already mentioned I think you said 7,000 articles in the US press alone so how widespread was this coverage and 
Why do you think that the international press was so interested in the bombing at that time? Yeah, well, the, the main reason was the nature of the attack and the result of the attack. Uh, panic spread all over the world and the British public knew that that was coming, that in the next war Germany was going to bomb London as they did in World War I. Uh, but in a much more atrocious way and with much more powerful weapons. Mm -hmm. So um, f uh, they, people were afraid and this is one of the main reasons why the, the news spread so fast and so massively all over the Western democracies. Let's say, of course, in dictatorships such as Japan, for example, or uh, Portugal, Germany, Italy and Spain, the news was that Guernica had been set afire by the Basques. There is an article, for example, at the New York Times saying um, the United Kingdom is not any longer an island. Uh, to be an island is not going to secure uh, British cities. And of course, we know it happened in World right. War II. This is one. Two, um, when Ristofen decided to bomb Guernica as a war experiment, I mean, they had many towns that they could have used as a war experiment, but they decided to do it in Guernica. Why? One of the first reasons was that Guernica was very close to the front line. In other words, they wanted to bomb a city that was close enough to the front line so it was going to be captured the, best, the very next day or in, in two days after the bombing so that the international press reporters or the International Red Cross could not reach Guernica before Guernica was captured by the rebel troops. Mm -hmm. and, um, well, it, it never happened in Guernica. It was very close to the front line, but it took three days to the Francoist troops to, to take the city. After the Francoist troops took Guernica, Guernica was closed for three days in order to test the effects of the bombing. There is one of the pilots of the Condor Legion, an eyewitness of all this, testifying that uh, he, they were ordered to go to Guernica to test, you know, to measure the holes, to see what had happened in the shelters, to see what, what, what was going on in Guernica. And Christophen himself and uh, Sperle also were in Guernica these days after the, the bombing, just uh, studying, measuring the level of destruction in the city. So that was well, something that went to the press, of course, uh, that, that is not something common uh, in war. So um, the fact that Guernica was a war experiment and the fact that Guernica was bombed in the way it was, um, that shocked the world. And only in the United States, I have said, I have recorded more than 7,000 articles. And um, many among them, on the first page, uh, they became first page uh, news. And um, all that happened before Picasso uh, hung his canvas in Paris. So by the time Picasso drew uh, his canvas, the bombing of Guernica was already a huge international story in the press. And this is why Picasso took the title for his canvas, Guernica, because he knew that it was going to be much more shocking by, you know, having all these images that the people already have in their minds uh, within his painting. Also, seven international reporters arrived in Guernica. The chronics of two of them were very impacting. They had a very strong echo uh, in, uh, at the international level. The first one was George Steer, George Steer was a reporter, an international reporter for the Times in mm -hmm. London, 
and the other one was Noel Monks, and he was a reporter, a journalist for the um, Daily News in London. And they both reached the Guernica just a few hours after the bombing. And um, they started to well, take notes. They interviewed about 30 people each in Guernica that day, and they wrote their articles. And their articles multiplied by the thousands uh, all over the Americas, from Canada to South Argentina, in wow. different languages. And the story of Noel Monks is very noticeable because he arrived, he was the first reporter arriving in uh, Guernica and uh, he did that, he started interviewing people and so on and at one o'clock at night or two o'clock at night he went back to Bilbao and then he started to write his story, he sent it to the press and the very next morning in Guernica without sleeping, almost sleeping anything they were all these reporters or these journalists were having breakfast in Bilbao and they were listening to the radio. On the radio they listened to General Capo de Llano. Capo de Llano was one of Franco's uh, most uh, bloody, let's say, generals. He, mm -hmm. he committed several atrocities during the war. And he was claiming that that Noel Monks, by that time he had already read his article, that Noel Monks is a liar and a drunkard. You cannot believe anything that he says or writes. And they were laughing there, the rest yeah. of the reporters, because they were always claiming that Guernica had never bombed, Guernica was born, and all that. All of a sudden, he received a telephone call, Noel Monks, and it was his boss, the owner of the Daily Express in London, telling him to go back to Guernica and to make sure that what he has written is, was right, was uh, the truth. And he was very upset because of that, you can imagine. I, yeah. mean, I have seen what happened in Guernica. He was repeating that once and again. Mm -hmm. I was in Guernica. <clears throat> well, he went back to Guernica under three conditions. If I go back to Guernica and I see exactly the same things that I saw yesterday, you are going to publish exactly the same article. Two, I want in the article Franco's telegram ordering or saying, expressing that uh, Guernica was never bombed but set afire by the Reds. And three, I want my own handwriting signature on that article so people know <clears throat> that I am speaking the truth. And he did it. He went back to Guernica. All seven reporters were with, went with him again, among them Steer, George Steer, and he wrote again the article and it was published by the Daily Express. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that factor, the lie, Franco's uh, denial of the bombing, was also something that uh, ignited the news. Why is he denying that? Uh, it must be more terrible than it was, maybe, because if not, uh, you don't have any reason to deny that you have bombed uh, a strategic position at war, if it was indeed a strategic position, but it was not. This controversy and this effort to refute these myths that we've been talking about, that continues even up until this day. And, and I know that recently there's been a lot of debate about what exactly was the death toll yeah. in uh, Guernica. So uh, what are some different theories about that and what is kind of the latest yeah. state of the research on that? Yeah, well, we have gathered about, uh, by now, about 25,000, maybe more, uh, documents in about 60 archives all over the world, in the Americas, in Europe, and in, in Asia. Well, we have recorded the death of 2,000 people. There are at least 39 
direct eyewitness. Direct eyewitnesses mean that uh, they were in Guernica when all these things happened. They saw what they were speaking about. They were giving their uh, testimonies separately, so you can cross them. In other words, they are very trustful uh, eyewitnesses' accounts. And all 39 of them, and these are 100% of the eyewitnesses' accounts that there exist, uh, claim that the death toll in Guernica was over 1,000. Some claim 3,000, some 2,000, some more than 1,000, just like that. For example, monks uh, says in one of his articles that dead people in Guernica may be by the thousands, but we don't know because many of the bodies are, you know, cremated under the rubble, and we are not going to know how many they are because the Francoist uh, authorities never did any record of these people. They never appeared. Uh, they were never recovered, in other words. So, they were kind of deliberately covered up as well, well the records. Exactly. Right? Yes, yes, the opposite. We know, for example, that um, the register of the death in Guernica was scratched. I mean, the pages in which, uh, during three days, uh, names of dead people were written down were taken, uh, scratched from that book yeah. and destroyed. And also the same thing happened with the religious uh, books of the death of the parishes nearby Guernica. All these were destroyed, so no one knew how many people died. Mm -hmm. But more important, the dead people in Guernica under the rubble uh, were never recovered. So uh, what the Basque government did was a register of the people who died afterwards in hospitals, uh, Basque hospitals all over the Basque country. And this is a register of 1,654 people dead. We know that in one only of the shelters, there were 500 people, and that no person was ever recovered alive, and no one survived from that shelter. Only three people survived wow. eh, during the bombing, but mm -hmm. after the bombing, they all died. So, well, 1,600 and 500 is more than 2,000 people. We don't know how many more. A good exercise could be the following in order to see how revisionist literature work. And I have to underline, Guernica is not an exception. Uh, in any atrocity that has happened in the 20th century, there is always a revisionist literature behind, claiming that you know the number of people dead is not as big as other people say, or that uh, this place was never destroyed, or that the intention of these people was not this or that. In Guernica, Guernica was um, rebuilt by prisoners of war. And these prisoners of war later on uh, also gave their uh, eyewitnesses accounts. Mm -hmm. And they said that meanwhile they were recovering, you know, bodies cremated, most of them burned in the rubbles in Guernica. They were ordered to drop them with the rest of the rubble and not to count them. There was no register ever done and there yeah. was no interest to do it. Well, all that is big omissions when you refer to the death toll as 126 plus. If we study the bombing, or we see the, the photographs of the people there, well, we know that uh, the death toll must be much higher than that. And we have to take into account monks. Monks went to the Guernica the very next day, and he wrote his second article. And in his second article, he doesn't speak of what he believes. He speaks about what he sees. Right. And he, saw, he wrote, I saw. I didn't count, I didn't uh, calculate. I saw the bodies of 600 people to be recognized 
you know, located in the cemetery and in front of the hospital in Guernica. They had mm -hmm. three days for the recognition of these people in order to know who they were. So these bodies were lined up eh, in front of the hospital, so siblings, friends, they could recognize them. Most of the people who died in Guernica were not from Guernica because they were going that day to Guernica in trains or buses eh, to the marketplace. So many among them were never recognized. Monks saw that. So if we claim that the death toll was less than 126, then we are saying that Monks was a liar, as General Capo de, la, de Llano was, was saying. Right. And uh, I mean, in my case, I don't have any doubts where the truth lies, if we have to compare these two personalities. Yeah. Monks end up World War II as the personal news reporter, let's say, one of the main people in Winston Churchill's a journalist office. So he was a very well-known, very truthful mm -hmm. reporter. If he says, if he wrote that he saw 600 bodies, uh, that must be true. Yeah. Or unless, if it is not, then we have to demonstrate and say why he's lying. What we cannot say is just claim against all odds that uh, the, the, the death toll is lower without providing any evidence at all. And this is how revisionist literature works. Right. So I just had one more question to kind of conclude here because I feel like Guernica, maybe of all the events of the war, it still speaks to us the most and is most in the public imagination. And maybe that's why there are still so many debates about it today. Uh -huh. So what do you think it is about the Guernica bombing that that has made it have such a prominent place in the public memory and that makes it so unique? Yeah, I think that it was the nature of the bombing what makes it so unique, even today in today's standards. As I have said, many other cities had been bombed before by the thousands, and probably hundreds of terror bombing had happened before. Eh, Guernica, for example, London was terror bombed uh, during World War I by the Zeppelins and many other cities in Africa, in the colonies. Uh, European colonies were bombed all over, in the Middle East and also in, uh, in Africa. One of the first terror bombing campaigns was the bombing of Kabul in 1919, after World War I. But what made Guernica unique was that probably for the first time in history, uh, civilians were targeted in such an amount and in, in such a brutal way by aircraft. Um, that was something uh, unique in mm -hmm. the case of Granica. And also the way, as I have said, the way the strategy to bomb the city in, intended to cause the maximum amount of death uh, among, in this case, civilians. So Guernica is still today a very, very strong uh, symbol mm -hmm. of that, of peace and the need for peace and the suffering of civilians uh, in warfare. What we are seeing today in Syria and in many other places is exactly what happened in Guernica. I mean, the result of the bombings, the material result of the bombings are the same. People die under the rubble by lacking oxygen or uh, burnt, uh, dying terrible, painful, slow death. Yeah. And this is something that uh, the canvas is telling us. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the program and putting this terrible incident that still speaks to us so much uh, in more of a historical context. 
Thank you very much to you for doing this. My conversation with Xavier was so extensive that we were not able to fit everything on this episode. However, on this episode's webpage at historiaspodcast.org, you can access a bonus segment addressing common myths about Guernica if you would like to learn more. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.